You are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Twelve Rites of Passage by Paula Graves, also known as Anne Haynes. Chapter 4, Realization. New Haven Police Department, February 13, 1998, 6.46 p.m. Listen to me, you son of a bitch. I'm telling you that a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation is missing, and you'd better damned well get off your lazy ass and find out what the hell happened to her. Fox Mulder leaned over the desk of New Haven Police Detective Clyde Tremaine, shoving his badge into the man's startled face. Tremaine put up his hands, lowering his voice to a soothing baritone. No one else has reported her missing. I'm reporting her missing, damn it. But you weren't even. I was on the phone with her. I heard a sound of pain, and I heard the phone clatter to the ground. Now I know she was here in New Haven. Have you checked with that friend you said she came here to visit? Mulder glared at the detective. Do I look stupid? He wondered. I went by the address Scully gave me, but her friend didn't answer the door. I have no idea what her name is, and I have no idea whether she and Scully were together when I was talking to her. I don't know. He raked his fingers through his hair, panic churning in his gut like piranhas in a frenzy. Tremaine stood and put his hand on Mulder's shoulder, urging him toward the chair in front of the desk. Agent Mulder, let me run the address you have through the system. See if I can at least find a name for you. Mulder sank into the chair and bent forward, breathing deeply in an effort to calm himself and focus on the task at hand. He couldn't remember the last time he'd reacted like this. Check that. He could remember quite well. November 1994. The day he'd gotten the call to come to Northeast Georgetown Hospital because his missing partner had returned. The sight of her lying so pale and still in that ICU bed, a breathing tube down her throat, her eyes taped shut. He'd lost it. He hadn't cared that Scully's mother was there, her fear for her daughter making her look decades older than she was. He hadn't cared about the other patients in the ICU or the doctors and nurses trying to do their jobs. All he cared about was the fact that after three long months of hell, the bastards had sent her back to him at the edge of death denying him even a single lead to follow, and he'd exploded in rage and fear and grief. Think I have it, Tremaine interrupted his dark memories. Benton Crane, 404 C. Ponce Street. Benton? Here's his number. Want me to try him? Mulder nodded, swallowing with difficulty. He pulled out his notebook and jotted down the number Tremaine dialed. Tremaine engaged the speakerphone and sat back, waiting expectantly as the phone rang at the other end. After three rings, a breathless male voice answered. Dana? Mulder lurched forward, grabbing the telephone receiver and lifting it to his ear. Benton Crane? Who's this? My name is Fox Mulder. I'm Dana Scully's partner. Where's Dana? The man sounded frantic. Mulder's heart sank. 
That's what I'm trying to find out, he replied. I was on the telephone with her earlier and we got cut off, but it sounded as if she might have been in trouble. My God, Benton said, his voice breathless. Where are you? I'm here in New Haven at the police station. Do you have any idea where she might have been around 5.45 this evening? Benton didn't answer right away and Mulder's stomach coiled into a tight, angry knot. He surged to his feet. What do you know, Crane? Where is she? I'm, I'm not sure. Tell me where she is. She was looking into the disappearance of a graduate student at the university, a woman named Sarah Chandler. Apparently, she and Dana had met over the internet, and now the woman's missing. Mulder sank back into his chair, stunned. She was following a case alone? I told her she was crazy to go in without backup. Tremaine frowned at Mulder, obviously not happy about being left out of the conversation. Mulder sighed and reached for the button that engaged the speakerphone. Crane, I'm putting you on speakerphone so that Detective Tremaine can hear what you say. He punched the button and put the receiver back in its cradle. Did Dana tell you who she was planning to speak to today? She called around 3.30 saying she was going to canvas Sarah Chandler's apartment complex, then check out some restaurant that the girl supposedly went to the day she disappeared. What restaurant? She didn't say. Damn it. Mulder bit back a growl. Did she make contact with your department, Detective Tremaine? He asked the dark-haired policeman. Tremaine shrugged. If she did, it was probably somebody from the day shift. Who's assigned to the Sarah Chandler case? I assume she's been reported missing. Tremaine nodded. Yeah, I think it's Dick Hansen. I'll get him on the horn. He crossed to a nearby desk and picked up the phone. Mulder? Even distorted by the speakerphone, Benton Crane's voice was unmistakably wary. Mulder pressed his lips together in annoyance, unutterably angry with the man on the other end of the line. Yeah? You said you got cut off and you thought she might be in trouble. What did you hear? Before Mulder could answer, Tremaine called his name, gesturing wildly. I think we've got something, Crane. I'll call back in a minute. He hung up the phone on Tremaine's desk and crossed to the other desk. Hanson said your partner came in around 10 this morning, wanting to look into the Chandler case herself. Dick had somebody make her a copy of the case file, but he said she seemed real interested in talking to Chandler's roommate, an Ann Milliken. Tremaine held out a piece of paper. Here's her address. Mulder took the slip of paper and nodded his thanks. Want me to come with you? He shook his head, realizing that if he couldn't have Scully covering his ass, he didn't want anyone else doing it for her. I'll check with Ms. Milliken. You go call Crane again. Tell him what's going on. Tell him I'll be back in touch. Nerves tight as drums, he hurried out to his mother's car and headed for Ann Milliken's apartment near the Yale University campus. Scully was bound, gagged, and blindfolded, and the back of her head hurt like hell. She'd never lost consciousness after the knock upside the head, so she was fairly sure she wasn't suffering from a concussion. 
But the throbbing pain in her skull wasn't exactly helping her slice through the confusing whirlwind of events that had filled the last hour or so of her life. She was in the back of a van, of that much she was certain. She was not alone, for she could hear the soft sound of another person's respiration. Female, she thought, listening, gauging the pitch of the breathing, smelling the faintest hint of lavender soap. Someone different from the one who had grabbed her up off the pavement after the blow to her head, that had been a man. Before she could so much as turn her head, a hood had been thrown over her head, her hands cuffed behind her back, and her captor had lifted her like a sack of potatoes and tossed her across a bench seat in the back of the van where she now sat. A blindfold had quickly replaced the hood, barely giving her the chance to take in the dark, nondescript interior of the vehicle. Seconds later, the cuffs had been replaced by softer, but just as restrictive, cloth bindings. Then, for the next half hour or so, her captors had left her alone to bounce and slide in an effort to keep her balance with every movement of the van. During those endless minutes, she'd relived every horror she'd ever been through. Dwayne Barry, Donnie Faster, the town folk of Dudley, Arkansas. And between paralyzing bouts of sheer panic, she'd scolded herself for going out on her own without backup. She knew better. Hell, how many times had she given Mulder that lecture? Don't ditch me, Mulder. You know you need me covering your ass. Two heads are better than one. Two guns are better than one. She was distracted from her self-scolding by the sound of movement. She felt the slight heat of another body near hers. Definitely a woman, Scully thought, as the scent of lavender grew stronger. She felt hands at the back of her head, brushing against the painful lump at the base of her skull. Seconds later, the gag loosened and fell away. She pushed the balled-up handkerchief out of her mouth and took the first full breath she'd taken in an hour. Who the hell are you and what do you want? A soft feminine chuckle to her right made her turn her head, even though she could see nothing with the blindfold in place. You're tougher than you look, Agent Skelly. The voice was higher pitched than she'd expected, a clear, soft soprano, delicate and almost ethereal. I hope your head isn't hurting too badly. Nice of you to care, although you could have saved yourself the worry if you'd kept your blackjack to yourself. We had nothing to do with that, Agent Scully. Scully arched an eyebrow, then realized her captor couldn't see the gesture beneath the blindfold. Then who hit me? We're not exactly sure for whom your assailant was working. The matter is of no importance anyway. He's no longer working for anyone. A shudder of understanding rippled through Scully. Who do you work for? That's debatable. The woman made a soft sound that could have been a chuckle, although Scully detected no humor in the sound. But for now, I'm here to give you information. Scully took a swift breath through her nose, anger quickly eclipsing fear as she realized that her captors had no intention of killing her, at least not yet. I'm not interested. I think you will be. You have me mistaken with my partner. He's the one with the mysterious double-crossing informants. It's one of his little foibles. I've been trying to work on breaking him of the habit of listening to shadows. 
Your partner isn't the one looking into Sarah Chandler's disappearance. Scully sighed. So this was your idea of a subtle warning? Stay away from the case, Agent Scully, or you won't live long enough to regret it? On the contrary, your assailant was sent to kill you. No warnings issued, but we find it more useful to keep you alive. Scully bit back a surge of rage, knowing that staying in control was her only hope of dealing with these people and emerging alive. When she spoke, her voice dripped cool sarcasm. I'm touched. I don't care what you think of me, Agent Scully. Your kind regard isn't part of my agenda. Then what is? And who the hell are you? Call me Raven. Scully laughed aloud. Isn't that a bit melodramatic? It suits me, her captor said simply. Nice, Scully murmured. A carrion eater, preying on the dead. I've come across too many of your sort in my business. Raven ignored the soft taunt and came to the point. Do you want to find Sarah Chandler, Agent Scully? Scully pressed her lips together tightly, annoyed at the simple question. She didn't want to be rational and pragmatic right now. She wanted to be angry as hell, then yell and scream and claw and hit. Was this how Mulder felt when Deep Throat jacked him around? When X had played his dirty little head games? She suddenly had a clearer understanding of what drove her partner to meet with shadow puppets in parking garages and dank alleys and behind bushes and in darkened cars. He surely didn't like it any more than she did. She knew he didn't like it. He chafed at the secrecy, the enforced subterfuge, just as she did now. But he couldn't turn his back on the secrets that lay in the shadows, and neither could she. Talk, she rasped. At this very moment, Sarah Chandler is being reprogrammed. Reprogrammed? Do you think she forgot the first 11 years of her life on her own? What are you suggesting? She was brainwashed into amnesia? Do you doubt the technology exists? Why would they? What could she possibly remember that could be worth wiping 11 years of memory? Maybe some of the deepest, darkest secrets the universe holds. Raven's voice darkened slightly. Secrets that were never to be told. Cut the crap, Scully spat, irritated by the woman's deliberate ambiguity. What does Sarah know? And why is it imperative that I find her? Because Sarah Chandler is the first domino. Find her before the reprogramming is finished, and you may start a whole chain reaction that'll bring all the secrets to light. What secrets? What happened to you while you were missing? Who the big players are? What their agenda entails? Raven's next words were no more than a whisper breathed into Scully's ear. What happened to Samantha Mulder? Garnham's Pita Cafe, 11.12 p.m. The slender, dark-haired Lebanese girl behind the cashier's desk stared up at Mulder in concern. Missing? He nodded. You said that she asked you questions about Sarah Chandler's disappearance. He glanced at her name tag, Teresa. Teresa nodded. I told her about the man Sarah had eaten lunch with the day she disappeared. What about the man? Just that he was older and had a British accent. 
Mulder barely covered his surprise. Tall, thin, with a long face and slightly sagging jowls? She nodded, her eyes widening. Agent Scully asked the same question. Do you know him? Better than I want to, he thought, but not nearly well enough. What did Agent Scully do after you told her about the British gentleman? She asked how to get out to the parking area behind the restaurant. I guess she wanted to see it because that's the way Sarah and her friend left that day. Teresa nodded toward a short, dimly lit corridor, not far from the cashier's desk. She went out that way, and that's the last I saw of her. Do many people go in and out that way? Teresa shook her head. Most of the time, yes, but we're having it repaved, so it's blocked off right now. Has anyone been out back at all this evening? She shrugged. Maybe to the dumpster, but probably not. The kitchen staff usually waits until a half hour or so before closing time to go out there, especially at this time of year, when it's so cold. Mulder's stomach coiled as he glanced down the darkened hallway, feeling as if he were staring at the doorway to hell. What if she was back there, lying hurt, or worse? He took a deep breath. Thanks for your help. Stealing himself, he walked through the passageway to the back door. Somewhere in New Haven, 8.25 p.m. The bindings on Scully's wrists were beginning to chafe, but not nearly as much as her captor's irritating game of cat and mouse. What could Sarah Chandler know about what happened to Samantha Mulder? Raven shifted, the warmth of her body moving away from Scully. It's not important what Sarah Chandler knows. Your first priority is to find her with whatever means are at your disposal. You can deal with the consequences later. Scully strained against her bindings, anger surging through her aching body, giving her renewed strength. I'm tired of your little conundrums, Raven. She spat out the name like something bitter on her tongue. I don't like games. If you have information about Sarah Chandler or Samantha Muller or what happened to me, then tell me. If you don't, then either kill me or let me go. Don't worry, Dana. I'll let you go soon. I need you to find Sarah Chandler before they're finished with her. And you're losing precious time playing 20 questions with me. Then tell me what you know. That's just it, Dana. I know very little more than you do. I don't know exactly who has her, though I have my suspicions. I don't know where they're keeping her. I don't know how long they'll keep her or what they'll do to her if their reprogramming efforts fail. Scully's stomach lurched. Do you think they'll kill her? It's always an alternative, Raven replied, her voice expressionless. Then what do you know? I know that you can no longer keep your partner out of your investigation. He must be brought into the search for Sarah Chandler. Why? So you can screw with his head like you're trying to screw with mine? His past is essential to uncovering the secrets you seek, as is your own. My own? Your memories of your time away are still locked in your head. You may be surprised to find what secrets your own mind may reveal to you. Scully closed her eyes behind the blindfold, blinking back tears of sheer terror. The gaping hole in her memory frightened her, 
but not as much as the nebulous horrors she might find locked away in that part of her mind that had gone dormant almost four years ago. She'd tried once to remember, and she'd left the counselor's office in a panic, her heart racing and her palms sweating. Could she face that again, even for her friend? Even if it could uncover the truth about what had happened to Mulder's sister? Allie behind Garnham's Pita Cafe, 8.25 p.m. Mulder found the cellular phone first. It lay half-hidden behind a dumpster in the alley behind the restaurant. He crouched by the small phone, his heart in his throat. The plastic casing was cracked, probably from hitting the pavement. He pulled out a pen and prodded the phone, turning it over. No blood that he could see. He tried to calm himself with that observation, but the mere presence of the discarded phone was enough to make his blood run cold. If it was Scully's, but maybe it wasn't. There was one quick way to find out. He pushed the memory dial button and pressed one. In the dim streetlight, he could barely make out the phone number of his own cellular unit. He closed his eyes for a second, fighting a wave of nausea. Then he stood slowly and walked around the dumpster. The sliding door to the dumpster was shut firmly, but the smell of rotting food and garbage stung his nostrils. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the pair of latex gloves he never left home without. Taking a deep breath, he donned the gloves and reached for the handle. The door slid open with a soft, rusty moan. He pulled a small pen flashlight from his hip pocket and shone it around the interior of the garbage bin. A handful of plastic bags full of garbage lined the bottom of the dumpster, but it didn't take long for Mulder to ascertain that the bin wasn't hiding his partner's body. He slammed the door shut and stumbled to the back wall of the restaurant. Leaning his forehead against the chilly bricks, he gulped in cold, relatively fresh air wishing he could clear his mind as easily as his lungs. After a moment, he pulled out his own cellular phone and called the number of the New Haven Police Department. When Tremaine answered the phone, he didn't bother with preamble. It's Mulder. I need a crime scene unit at Garnham's Pita Cafe. He rattled off the address. Is she? Tremaine's voice was wary. Mulder closed his eyes again. I don't know. He waited by the dumpster, his stomach churning, not moving from his spot by the back wall of the restaurant for fear of further compromising the potential crime scene. Tremaine arrived within 10 minutes, followed by a couple of crime scene investigators. Tremaine crossed the alley to Mulder's side. What do you got? Mulder waved his hand at the cellular phone by the dumpster. It's Scully's. Tremaine spared him a quick, sympathetic glance before he gestured for the technicians to come over. He pointed out the phone and the techies went to work. Tremaine grabbed Mulder's arm and pulled him to the side. If there's anything to find, these guys will find it, Agent Mulder. But maybe you'd better go handle your partner's boyfriend. He's been calling every ten minutes, looking for answers. He could probably use someone to talk to, and he might be able to shed more light on what happened. You know it's SOP to question the significant other. Maybe he knows something he's not telling. Mulder stared at the detective. Is that a problem? 
Tremaine asked. I could send one of my guys. Mulder shook his head quickly. No, I'll go. He walked back to his mother's car, his head spinning. He didn't know what to feel. Terror? Anger? Jealousy? Hurt? He was too numb to feel anything at all, numb and stunned. Functioning on autopilot, he made the 20-minute drive to Benton Crane's Pont Street apartment in just under 15 minutes. He took the stairs two at a time, concentrating on the way his heart rate increased and his breath exploded in his lungs. He reached the fourth floor landing in seconds, jogged to number 404C, and knocked. The door opened almost immediately, and Mulder found himself face to face with one of the most handsome men he'd ever seen. Something straight out of a movie, he thought, taking in the man's perfectly chiseled features, light blue eyes, and thick, dark hair. He was as tall as Mulder himself, maybe an inch taller. He was broad-shouldered, narrow-hipped, and the jeans and t-shirt he wore couldn't have camouflaged an ounce of fat had there been an ounce of excess fat on that body, which there wasn't. Mulder hated him on sight. You're Mulder, the man said. He even had a good voice, low, slightly musical. Crane. Benton Crane's eyes narrowed, raking over Mulder appraisingly. What's happened? Do you know anything about what happened to Dana? We found her cellular phone behind a restaurant where she'd conducted some interviews concerning Sarah Chandler's disappearance. How do you know it's her phone? My number was programmed on the memory dial. God knows why, Crane muttered. Mulder narrowed his eyes, his shoulders aching with the tension that was building and coiling in his muscles. I am her partner. Crane cocked his head. Yeah, so she says. His tone of voice left Mulder with no illusions about Crane's opinion of him. Mulder gritted his teeth and glared at the man. Think I could come in and ask you a few questions, Mr. Crane? Crane stepped back slowly and gestured toward the interior of the apartment. What do you want to know? Mulder had a million questions, but he started with the most important one. Do you know anything about Scully's disappearance that you haven't told us? Crane met his glare with a hard, cold expression. If I knew anything, I'd have told the police. But not me. Crane didn't answer. Mulder sucked in a deep breath. Then maybe you can tell me this, Mr. Crane. Why would my partner come here to investigate this case without even telling me what she was doing, much less asking me to back her up? Crane shook his head slowly, a wry smile curving his too perfect mouth. You really are more clueless than even I imagined. Mulder took a couple of steps toward Crane, closing in, invading his space. She never should have gone out there without backup. Crane didn't even back away an inch, meeting Mulder's intense glare without so much as flinching. I know that. I told her that, but you know Dana. Yes, I do. Mulder's fists clenched at his sides. I know her very well. Crane merely smiled. Obviously not as well as you think. What is that supposed to mean? Maybe that if you knew Dana so well, you'd know that she doesn't take kindly to being ditched like a bad date every time you get the urge to go play chase the alien. 
Mulder backed away from Crane, afraid of the blood-red haze of fury coloring his vision. Had Scully said that to this man? Had they talked about him behind his back? His gut twisted, and he had to swallow the lump that rose in his throat. Mr. Crane, where were you this afternoon around 5.45 p.m.? For the first time, Crane's composure failed him. His mouth dropped open, and he stared at Mulder. What are you implying? It's a simple question, Crane. Where were you at 5.45 p.m.? I had an afternoon class at the university. I assume you can confirm that? You have witnesses who can place you at the university at that time? Crane nodded, anger blazing behind his blue eyes. And how long were you at the university after that? I left at 6.30. Dana and I were planning to have dinner together, but she wasn't waiting for me when I got here. Scully has a key to your apartment? Yeah, I made her a copy the last time she came to visit. Mulder couldn't allow himself to think about the implications of that. Did Scully mention any other leads she wanted to follow besides the restaurant? Crane shook his head. She didn't even mention the restaurant. She didn't tell me all that much. The rattle of keys outside the door stopped Crane in mid-sentence. He glanced at Mulder. They heard the deadbolt lock disengage, and Mulder pulled his gun from his hip holster. The doorknob turned. The door swung open. Mulder lowered the gun, a whoosh of air escaping his lungs. There, in the open doorway, hair disheveled and a scrape on her chin, stood Dana Scully. Scully dragged through the front door of Benton's apartment, a weary half-grin on her face. Hi, honey, I'm home. She stopped in mid-sentence as she looked beyond Benton's worried gaze and met the storm-cloud eyes of her partner. Before she could say another word, Benton enfolded her in his embrace. She winced as his strong arms crushed her bruised, scraped-up body. Dana, my God, are you okay? I'm fine, Benton. She heard a soft huffing sound from Mulder's direction, and she gently extricated herself from Benton's bear hug to get a better look at her partner. Mulder's teeth were bared in a grimace of a smile, but his eyes were void of humor. She sighed. What happened to you? Benton asked. Long story. She looked back at Benton, reading the tension in the lines of his face. I'll tell you in a minute. She forced herself to look back at Mulder, quailing slightly at the fierce anger thinly veiled behind his stony mask. Hi. What the hell were you thinking? Mulder asked, his voice tight and slightly hoarse. Explanations can wait, Mulder. Benton put his arm around Scully, drawing her protectively against him. Mulder's lips pressed into a thin line. Mind your own business, Crane. This is my business. Scully pulled away from Benton. I can handle myself, Benton, but you can do me a favor. He looked at her, his gaze warm and understanding. Anything. I could use a nice hot bath. Will you run me one, please? I need to talk to Mulder. Benton's eyes narrowed slightly. You sure? She nodded. He shot another glare at Mulder and walked down the hall to the bathroom. Scully waited until she heard water running before she looked up at Mulder. 
I'm sorry. I guess you're probably up to speed on what's going on by now. He nodded slowly, his expression still taut. You should have known better than to go off on your own like this. I expected better judgment from you. Her jaw dropped, and for a moment she could only stare at him. Then she found her voice. You have the gall to talk to me about good judgment, Scully? Look, maybe I should have told you about Sarah Chandler, but the fact is you had enough to deal with this weekend. I didn't want to add to your worries. Like hearing you mugged over the phone didn't add to my worries? Damn it, Scully, once in a lifetime was enough. He pushed his fingers through his hair, spiking the dark strands. I sure as hell didn't need to relieve that nightmare. She swallowed with difficulty. Dwayne Barry, she realized. She'd been leaving a message on Mulder's answering machine the night Dwayne Barry. She closed her eyes, wondering why she hadn't made the connection. Mulder, and then to get here and find out that you also failed to tell me about your new boyfriend. She pressed her lips together in annoyance. Mulder, I'm too tired to get into this now, and it's really none of your business. The hell it's not. What do you know about this guy? He's an old friend. We've known each other for years. You've never told me about him. You don't exactly give me a catalog of your associates, Mulder. There are lots of things and people you don't think I need to know about. They glared at each other, tension buzzing between them. Scully's body ached from her ordeal already. Standing here facing off with her partner wasn't helping a bit. She looked away. Now, if you'll excuse me. He caught her arm as she tried to pass, pulling her hard against him. The heat of his body spread across her skin everywhere their bodies touched. I don't excuse you, Scully. You owe me more than disdain. She stared at him, wishing she could deny his words, but it was true. She did owe him. He'd saved her life more than once and as recently as three weeks ago. But she also knew that she wasn't the only one in debt. What about what you owe me, Mulder? Like trust. He let go of her so suddenly that she almost lost her balance. Trust is earned. She went cold from head to toe. And I haven't earned your trust? His lower lip trembled open, his hard, steady gaze faltering. Scully. She was too tired to deal with him anymore. Shutting her eyes to the side of him, she lurched toward the hallway. She'd taken no more than a couple of steps when she bumped into the library table behind the sofa. The sharp corner hit her half-healed bullet wound dead on, drawing a muffled cry of pain from her throat. Damn it! Before she could draw a deep breath, Mulder was by her side, sweeping her off her injured leg and into his arms. Weakened by pain and the dizzying sensation of being cradled in Mulder's embrace, Scully clung to him, pressing her face against the hot skin of his throat, breathing in the warm, masculine smell of him. He put her down on the sofa, crouching in front of her, he wore a stricken expression on his face, his eyes dark with concern. Are you okay? Just great, Mulder. She winced slightly as his hand moved over her injured leg. You're bleeding. Mulder stared down at the small patch of red seeping through the dun-colored fabric of her pantsuit trousers. 
I guess it opened up the wound. It's, it's not too bad. He looked up at her, his eyes haunted. It was too damned soon, Scully. His voice was hoarse and unsteady. I can't take it. She knew he was talking about the shooting. She knew what he'd gone through, trying to keep her alive with his own hands, watching her drifting away. She'd experienced the same thing once in a tiny hospital in Alaska, when all that stood between Mulder and death were two electroshock paddles and her dogged refusal to give up on him. He reached up and gently brushed back a strand of hair that had fallen forward into her eyes. He tucked it behind her ear, his fingers lingering there, tracing the curve of delicate flesh and cartilage. The power of even that light, almost imperceptible touch stunned her. She felt utterly aware of him from head to toe, even though he touched only the outer edge of her ear. Did they hurt you tonight? Should I take you to a hospital? Let someone check you out. The tender concern in his voice washed over her, soothing her. Her earlier anger seemed to dissipate, leaving only a fierce, sweet ache for him that never seemed to die, no matter how angry he made her. I'm fine, Mulder. His lips curved in the faintest of smiles. Like steel to a magnet, she moved inexorably closer to him, unable to resist his pull. His eyes locked with hers, darkening, his lips parting, expelling a warm breath that danced across her lips like a kiss. Benton's voice sliced through the exquisite tension between them. Your bath awaits. Mulder drew back from her and rose. Scully closed her eyes and drew a long, shaky breath, pushing herself off the couch. She took a step away from the couch and almost fell as her injured leg buckled for a moment, but Mulder grabbed her immediately, steadying her with a strong arm around her waist. He gave her a look that brooked no further argument and supported her down the hallway to the bathroom. A warm, fragrant cloud of sandalwood scent enveloped them in the bathroom doorway. Mulder released her and Scully hobbled into the bathroom, delighting in the wonderful smell of the bubble bath. She crossed to the large tub and dipped her fingers into the bubbles, testing the temperature of the water. It was nice and hot, and she almost shivered in anticipation of stripping off her soiled clothes and stepping into the bath. Need my help getting into the tub? She turned to look at Mulder. He wore a sly grin that she immediately recognized for what it really was, his tacit apology for his earlier behavior. She forgave him with her own gesture, an arch of her eyebrow and a dry retort. In your dreams. His smile widened slightly as he correctly interpreted her acceptance of his overture. More often than you know, Scully. He backed out of the bathroom, closing the door behind him. She allowed herself a little smile as she began stripping off her clothing, knowing that she had probably let him off way too easily, but not really caring. She knew Mulder was a complicated, contradictory creature. It was part of what made him the man she loved so dearly. He could be an ass, but he could also make her feel like the most cherished woman in the world. 
Maybe it was as simple as the fact that of all the women in the world, she was the one to whom he'd opened his guarded heart. After ascertaining that her re-injured leg had already stopped bleeding, she sank into the tub and completely immersed herself from head to toe before rising up and slicking her wet hair back from her face. The hot soap and water stung her cuts and scrapes, but the pain faded quickly, leaving her with a marvelous feeling of luxuriant well-being. She lazily scrubbed away the grime of the long, bizarre day. She tried to mull over everything that had happened to her since that morning, but her mind kept drawing her back to Mulder and the effect his slightest touch had on her. She knew his anger and tension hadn't been completely the result of professional territorialism. He was jealous of Benton, jealous in a very human male way. She remembered back to the hazy morning three weeks ago when she'd awakened to find him at her bedside. The fierce determination she'd seen in his face had startled her. It was the same determination that he normally saved for his obsession with their cases. Only this time, she was the object of his attention. She had sensed then that he'd come to some sort of decision about their relationship, but after that one morning, he'd never really approached the subject, and she'd begun to think she'd imagined things. But after tonight, she knew that she and Mulder stood at a crossroads, and it terrified her. She was afraid of the risks they would face if they took a step toward a deeper relationship, but she was also very tempted by the potential rewards. To be loved utterly, completely, by Fox Mulder. She closed her eyes, shivering, despite the heat of the bath. She could imagine nothing more powerful, more significant in her life. But there was always the risk that she could be sacrificing the most satisfying relationship she'd ever had or could ever hope to have. Besides, with everything facing them, the mystery of Sarah's disappearance, all of Raven's hints about deep, dark secrets and lies, now was not the time to explore the possibilities that lay between her and Mulder. But what if this was the only chance they ever got? What if they solved all the mysteries in front of them, answered all the questions, found the truth, only to discover that their time had passed and what might have been could never be again. Could she really live with that? She sank deeper into the tub, the answer eluding her. Mulder took a deep breath and walked into the living room where Crane was pacing in a tight circle. He stopped and looked up at Mulder, his blue eyes dark with anger. Mulder held up his hands. Look, I know, you are such an ass. Mulder lowered his hands, his fists clenching by his side. I don't know why Dana lets you get away with the way you treat her. You don't know anything about Scully and me. Bullshit, Mulder. I know all that I need to know. I know you ditch her and you dismiss her and you treat her like shit and expect her to keep tagging along like a good little partner. Mulder swallowed convulsively. Scully told you that? She didn't have to tell me that. I can see what's right in front of me. Scully's a big girl, Crane. If she wanted out, she'd get out. 
I know she wouldn't appreciate her boyfriend meddling in her job. You don't know anything about Dana and me, Mulder, so how can you know what Dana would or wouldn't appreciate? Crane slowly closed the buffer zone between them. The hairs on the back of Mulder's neck rose in response to his opponent's aggressive stance. Then enlighten me. How long have you known Dana Mulder? Six years? About. I've known her 24, so don't try to outdo me, Mulder. You want to compare Dana's stories? I've got a million of them. I gave her her first kiss. I was the one who held her hand and let her cry on my shoulder when her puppy came down with parvo and had to be put to sleep. Crane took another step closer to Mulder, closing the distance to less than a foot. When you blew off her theories in that stigmata case a couple of years ago, I was the one she called to talk it through, to work through her doubts and beliefs, because you couldn't handle it. Mulder felt the world shift just a bit beneath his feet, and he grabbed the back of a nearby chair to steady himself. Scully told you about that case? A slight smile spread over Crane's face. Dana tells me a lot of things, like her fears about that implant she found in the back of her neck. Of course, she couldn't come to you about it. You told her not to freak out about it, and she was too afraid of appearing like a fool in your eyes to tell you how her fears kept her awake at night until her test results turned up negative. Mulder felt a rumble of nausea building in his gut. Scully had told Crane about her fears because she was too ashamed to come to him. He looked away, horrified at the thought. God forbid Dana might get in the way of you and a UFO. You'd run her down so fast you wouldn't know what hit her. You'd take from her constantly. When are you going to be there for her? Maybe it's time you took a long, hard look at yourself, Mulder, and figure out why somebody as great as Dana bothers to put up with your crazy, psychotic ass. The rattle of keys outside the door stopped Crane in mid-sentence. He took a step toward the door while Mulder found himself instinctively reaching for his holster. The door swung open and a small, pretty woman walked into the apartment. Her chin-length, sun-streaked hair bouncing gently with each energetic step. Her face lit up when her eyes fell on Crane. Sweetheart, if I had to sit through one more dry tax law lecture, I think I'd have slit my wrists. She wrapped her arms around him. Did you miss me? She kissed him hard and long. Mulder's mouth fell open, at first with indignation at Crane's blatant infidelity to Scully, then with dawning realization that he'd made a bigger fool of himself than he'd originally thought. The woman gave Crane one more long, thorough kiss, then looked over at Mulder as if she just that moment realized there was a stranger in her living room. She cocked her head and gave him a look that reminded him for all the world of Scully in her most skeptical mold. And you are? Mulder blinked at the woman in Crane's arms, surprised by both her sudden arrival and her query. When he didn't answer right away, her other eyebrow arched. Well? Crane turned to look at Mulder, sliding his arm possessively around the woman's shoulders. The look on his face left Mulder with no doubt that Scully's old friend had purposefully led Mulder astray about the nature of the relationship between them. Mulder, this is my fiance, Lorna Youngs. Lorna, that's Fox Mulder. Lorna smiled, although there was a little gleam in her eyes that looked less than friendly. Dana's Mulder. Her blue eyes swept over him head to foot. 
Funny, I always got the impression you were bigger and better looking. She continued to smile, so he wasn't sure if she was joking or not. He ventured a half-smile of his own. How kind of you to say so. Dune! Mulder turned at the sound of his partner's voice behind him, and his breath caught in his throat. Scully wore a pale lavender silk robe that emphasized every dip and curve of her body, and her hair lay in dark red tangles around her pale face. Her eyes were bright with happiness, and a huge smile lit up her face as she limped across the room toward them. Mulder felt a keen twinge of disappointment when she walked past him to fling herself in the outstretched arms of Lorna Young's. Just once, he thought. I want to make her smile like that. Dune, I thought you were in Boston. Lorna gave Scully a playful shove. Look at you, coming to town to put the moves on my man while I was away. Starbuck, you ignorant slut. Scully chuckled. Uh-huh, Dune, Huck's all yours. Big guy like that's too expensive to clothe and feed. Lorna tipped Scully's chin up, frowning at the little scrape she saw there. What happened to you? Zigged when I should have zagged. Knowing Dana, it's probably a long story, Crane said, which we can hear later. Lorna wrapped her arm around Crane's waist as if she couldn't bear to be separated from him for a moment. Since your place is occupado for the night, what say we go to my apartment and catch up? She looked up at her fiancé, an almost predatory gleam in her eyes. Crane dragged his eyes away from his fiancée long enough to pin Mulder with a meaningful glare. I don't know, Lorna. Mulder here has been acting like a real ass. Lorna shrugged. Like that's something new? Mulder pressed his lips together in annoyance, feeling like the butt of a joke. Just how much had Scully told these people about him? He shot his partner a glare, which she returned with a placid Mona Lisa half-smile, obviously amused by his discomfort. Crane looked uncertain. I don't know. Dana can whip his ass, Lorna murmured, just loud enough to be certain that Mulder could hear her. She looked over her shoulder, her deep blue eyes bright with wicked amusement. Lovely meeting you, Fox. It's been real for me, too. Mulder waggled his fingers at her. Lorna chuckled and stood on tiptoes to whisper something in Crane's ear. His eyes widened slightly and he grabbed his keys from the table by the door. There's food in the fridge, videos in the cabinet, and you know where the bathroom is. See you around. Lorna laughed and opened the door for him. Seconds later, the door closed behind them and silence swallowed the apartment. Mulder broke the quiet with a long sigh. Hurricane Lorna, he murmured. She is a little larger than life, Scully agreed. He looked at her, noting the dark circles under her eyes and the tender bruising that was beginning to show around her mouth, and his earlier irritation melted away. He crossed to her, touching the corner of her mouth with the tip of his finger. Gag? Her eyes glowed like sapphires as she looked up at him. She nodded. He put one finger beneath her chin and lifted her face so he could get a better look at the scrape on her chin. When you fell the first time? Yes. Sliding his hands over her shoulders, he gently turned her around so that her back was to him. 
He felt a little shiver run through her, and his body tightened in response. He forced himself to breathe deeply and evenly as he lifted her hair and ran his fingertips over the back of her skull, tracing the lump he found there. Blackjack? That's my guess. He closed his eyes, his whole being protesting the treatment she'd suffered. Are you sure they didn't hurt you otherwise, Scully? They didn't. The unspoken question hung between them for a second, then Scully turned around quickly, her body close to his. He opened his eyes to meet her reassuring gaze. They didn't touch me that way. He took a ragged breath. How did you get away? They let me go. He arched one eyebrow, surprised. She stepped away from him, nodding slightly toward the sofa. He followed and sat next to her, close enough that their legs and shoulders touched. She shifted, leaning against him, and instinctively he lifted his arm around her shoulder, drawing her into a comforting embrace. She rested her head against his cheek. I'm pretty sure that two different groups with two different agendas were involved. Two? She told him what had happened to her, from the initial blow to the back of her skull, to the bizarre ride in the van with the mysterious raven, to the moment when the van stopped and she was left at the side of the road to free herself of her bindings. To her surprise, she'd found her car parked nearby. Her captors had apparently brought it along with them to make sure she had a way home after her ordeal. When she was through, Mulder sat in stunned silence for a moment, letting all that she'd told him sink in. Then he said, Did she give you any indication how Sarah Chandler might be able to lead us to the truth about Samantha? Scully shook her head, her damp hair tickling his chin. We don't know that any of it is true, Mulder. She drew away from him, leaning forward to pick up the file folder that lay on the coffee table. It was the information she'd obtained from the New Haven police concerning Sarah Chandler's disappearance. I guess you've been through this file? He nodded. How much do you know about the missing years of your friend's life? Not much. Sarah herself didn't really remember much, only bits and pieces, snippets of conversation, fragments of memories. Scully flipped open the folder, absently pushing back a tangle of hair that fell into her face. She didn't tell me much. Anne Milliken let me look at a scrapbook she kept. But even that was more about her impressions than what she actually remembered, or thought she remembered. Mulder shook his head slightly, amazed at Scully's endless capacity for skepticism, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. You think her recovered memories may be nothing more than confabulation? It's a possibility, Mulder. Research has shown, he held up his hand. I know. She glanced at him. I think we're asking the wrong questions here, anyway. And what would the right question be? Why did Sarah Chandler meet with our British friend? After almost an hour of going rounds with all the evidence they had to date, Scully's head was beginning to hurt. She lifted a hand to her forehead, pressing her fingers against the burgeoning ache. Mulder sat back from his hunched position over the file folder and looked at her, concern in his hazel-gray eyes. Headache? She nodded. Long day. Why don't you go to bed? Get some sleep. I'm going to go over this file one more time. No, I'm okay. 
I'm too wired for sleep right now. I'll see if Benton has some aspirin. She went into the kitchen and searched the cabinets until she found a bottle of acetaminophen. She downed a couple of tablets with a glass of water, then crossed to the refrigerator, realizing that her stomach was growling. Did you have any supper? She called the molder. No, I was too busy trying to find you. She took some sliced turkey and a jar of brown mustard and started making a couple of sandwiches for her and Mulder. While she was spreading mustard on the bread, Mulder shuffled into the kitchen. He'd kicked off his shoes and was down to a plain white t-shirt and jeans. A good look for him, she thought, watching him surreptitiously while he poured them a couple of glasses of tea. So you and this guy Crane go way back, he asked. Lorna, too, we're all Navy brats. He nodded as if that explained everything. She held back a smile, reading his body language and the vaguely mortified expression on his face. He was embarrassed by his actions tonight, as well he should be. He'd assumed things about her and Benton that he now knew to be utterly false, but not before he'd made a fool of himself. But she didn't really have room to judge. She had wrestled with her own demons concerning Mulder and his catnip effect on women, and more than once she'd come out looking like an idiot, too. The bottom line was, no matter how you tried to define it, their relationship was intense and exclusive. There was no room for other women or other men. Unfortunately, the situation also spawned an incredible amount of sexual frustration. She sighed and slapped the second sandwich together with a little more force than necessary. Mulder's head turned and he pinned her with a questioning gaze. She squirmed slightly under his scrutiny. Lorna, Benton, and I met when I was 10 and they were both 12. We were in San Diego then and both Benton and Lorna were new to the base. I met Benton first, fishing. He was the only one catching any fish that day. I was so jealous. She smiled at the memory. Benton showed me his secret. It was all in how you hooked the worm. Mulder's eyebrows rose slightly. I could have told you that. She shot him a look that made him chuckle. Benton started taking me fishing whenever possible. He didn't seem to mind doing boy things with me like my brothers and the other boys seemed to. He didn't make fun of me or call me freckles or anything that used to give the other brats such joy. She glanced at Mulder, realizing something for the first time. One of the reasons she'd grown so attached to Mulder so quickly was that he, like Benton, had never treated her as if she didn't have a right to be there by his side. He'd treated her like an equal partner, even during his bout with overprotectiveness, right after she'd returned to the X-Files after Dwayne Barry had abducted her. When Lorna's family moved on base, she was subjected to the same teasing I had gone through, only it was maybe worse for her, because, believe me, red hair and freckles don't have a thing on looking like Patty Duke. Mulder chuckled softly. She sort of does look like Patty Duke, doesn't she? Scully nodded. Some of the kids followed her around, singing that awful song from the Patty Duke show, you know, Cousins, identical cousins. Mulder laughed out loud. Oh, God, poor Lorna. She never let them get to her, though. 
Scully smiled, remembering how her tough-as-nails friend had always found a way to turn the table on her tormentors. She made a point of memorizing the whole theme song, and the next time they did that, she sang the rest for them until they realized they'd been trumped and slinked away like the little rats they were. So she and Crane have been sweethearts since childhood? Scully shook her head. No, they were always just friends, although I always thought they were made for each other. They stayed friends even after the families were transferred away from each other. They kept in touch through college, through starting their careers. Lorna saw Benton through a bad bout with depression after his mother died, and Benton helped Lorna when her fiancé jilted her the day before her wedding, but always just as friends. So what happened? One day they woke up and realized they were in love? Mulder took the sandwich she handed him and passed her a glass of tea in return. She took her sandwich and tea to the kitchen table and sat. A year ago, Lorna was involved in a horrible car accident. She had a massive skull fracture and the doctors weren't sure she'd live. So that was the friend you were so worried about. Mulder sat across from her and took a bite of his sandwich. Scully nodded. She was in a coma for almost a week and Benton never left her side. He said he realized then, when he was so close to losing her, that all those years they had been looking past each other for the perfect soulmate who was actually right in front of them. When she came out of her coma, he didn't waste any more time. She smiled. They're getting married in August. She waited for Mulder to make the expectable smart alecky remark, but he just took a sip of tea and looked at her over the brim of his glass. Friends make the best lovers, they say. She stared back at him, well aware of the implications of the words he just uttered. Tension coiled between them, hot and sweet. Seconds passed into moments as their eyes locked, dared, pleaded. Aching with regret, Scully broke their gaze, looking down at the half-eaten sandwich in front of her. No matter how delicious the temptation to explore the possibilities of loving Fox Mulder, she knew that finding Sarah and uncovering a lifetime of lies and secrets had to come first. Maybe we should go over the case file one more time. There could be something we missed, some connection to the man Sarah met at Garnum's. I've been thinking about that. Mulder washed down the last bite of sandwich with his tea and carried his plate to the sink. He turned on the water and rinsed the plate. We know that Mr. Manners is tied in with cancermen and his cronies, and they were all involved with my father during his days at the State Department. Mulder, we still don't really know how much of a connection I know, Scully. Mulder put the plate in the drain rack and turned to look at her. I think that maybe my mother knows more than she's ever told me. I think you and I should go see my mother tomorrow. Scully frowned. Are you sure you want her involved? She's been through so much. I know, but I think this would be something that would give her a chance to atone for some of her past mistakes. Mulder smiled slightly. Mom and I had a good talk today. I think she's ready to face the past. Scully carried her own plate to the sink. Mulder shifted slightly to let her dump the remains of her dinner down the garbage disposal and rinse her plate. He leaned in slightly, his breath disturbing the hair that curled at her temple. Are you ready to face the past, Scully? 
She looked up, met his intense gaze. You told me that Raven said you have to unlock your memories of the time you were away. Can you do that? Can you face it? She felt the overwhelming urge to fling herself into his arms and let him hold her, shield her from her fears and her doubts. But instead, she lifted her chin a fraction and let the gentle strength of his gaze bolster her. I can face anything if it means we can find the answers we're looking for, Mulder. He smiled slightly, cupping her cheek for a moment before he dropped his hand to his side and stepped away. Let's take one more look at the file, he suggested. She followed him back into the living room. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.